This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Unlikely Rebels, the moral outlaw archetype. So, you will be unsurprised to discover that Jules has been reading. (laughs) Yeah, something came up in a book that made me consider Twilight in a new light. Um, And yeah, I know this already doesn't sound like we're talking about outlaws, but please bear (laughs) with us because it is relevant. Um, We've done an entire episode on lovable rogues and yet another devoted just to Robin Hood. Uh, Also one on con artists, both good and bad. Obviously, all these things have overlap with the moral outlaw, but we're coming at this from a different angle today because this trope is both popular and can be used in some surprisingly versatile ways. So whether you use the term or not, most people love an outlaw character. I mean, who doesn't love an outlaw character? Um, The archetype is as popular as the pirate or space cowboy, um, or in fact, actual cowboy archetypes. Um, And we're going to kind of delve into why this is um, and how moral outlaws serve a plot. And we're going to take a look at the surprisingly broad ways that they can actually be used. Because it might surprise you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It probably will do, because I hadn't considered it in this light before. And then it really got me thinking. And it's just like... Moral outlaws crop up in an astonishing amount of fiction that's often derided mm-hmm. for uh, derided as for girls or chicklet, um, and the, you know there's a whole other basket of eggs there that deserve a close inspection because you would expect theoretically the moral outlaw type to be confined to thrillers and crime and fiction that is predominantly intended for men, even though women read it voraciously. If you see what I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, and yet. <laughs> And yet. And yet. <laughs> it's the, the whole other basket of eggs. Yes. So where did the concept of outlawry come from? Well, um, we should first probably have a short history lesson, because uh, <laughs> because I know how you like to uh, to get in that history, and you know how I like to listen to that history and also get in that history. So settle down, children. History lesson first. History lesson. So, uh, from a Western European perspective, way back in the early medieval period, and to be honest, probably before that, but records get a bit scratchy, um, there were some crimes which would result in a person being unmade. Yes. So, in Saxon England, for example, killing a member of your family, becoming a kinslayer, could and did result in you being declared nidik. Literally means nothing an unperson who is exiled from human society and who could be killed by anyone without the act of invoking the force of the law. In Saxon times, a straightforward murder usually meant a fine in wergild or, you know, body money. So you pay, you pay a fine in silver for the corpse you'd created, if you see what I mean. Yes, which was an ingenious system which actually sort of stopped a lot of feuding families, yeah, <laughs> weirdly enough. It did actually. <laughs> People had more of an issue over paying hefty fines for murdering someone than they did over... Just continuing um, the killing. <laughs> continuing, yeah, continue, you know, that someone killing one of theirs, you kill one of theirs, etc, yeah. etc. 
Um, so yeah, the wear guild thing was actually very clever. Um, the Irish equivalent was the arrake or the body mm. fee. Um, and if you couldn't pay it, then you had to serve a, a period of indentured servitude to the person to whom yes. you owed the arrake. So um, being unmade was a very harsh punishment uh, because it meant total ostracism. Um, for those, I assume most people know what ostracism means, but for those who don't, it's nothing to do with ostriches. Um, basically, it, it was being a total <laughs> outcast from the human race. And being that, it, it tends to do weird stuff to the average human mind. Um, and that's before someone comes along and lops your head off just for fun, you know, or people hunt you down or etc. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> For shits and giggles. So anyway, the centuries rolled on and the practice evolved into something that was far more tightly controlled by the law. Criminals could be tried in absentia and declared outlaws. You know, to be honest, it wasn't in your best interest to turn up for trial if you had actually stolen a deer and you were likely to be hanged for theft. So being tried in absentia and declared an outlaw, well, technically you already yes. were because they knew you'd killed that deer, so they were going to hang you for it. Um, so capturing or killing an outlaw could net you a nice payday. Uh, they would offer rewards. The whole spoof with the reward posters and things, it sort of dates back to this time, although they weren't as common as people think they were. Yes. Um, I mean, you could actually even just earn a few coins by providing information. Yeah, definitely. As well. And depending on which century and country you're in, other marks, such as missing a hand, could mark you as a regular thief or branding on the face for other misdemeanours. I.e., you might not hang for what was considered a petty theft. They might just chop your left hand off, which could result in you dying or getting gangrene or something. Yeah. Or it could just mean everyone knows because you're missing a hand that you're a thief and they refuse to serve you or work with you and you essentially you become an outcast. Yes. Um, of course, this was particularly difficult for people who might have lost a hand for... Another reason, uh, because it was basically being seen as a sign of being a thief, being untrustworthy. I mean, I think that that's true, but it's, it's only if people were travelling around, whereas your own community all yeah. knew each other and they knew you were a thief and nobody was going to forget it with that yes, missing yeah, hand. Exactly. So what you might do is try and go to another village, but you wouldn't get another start there exactly, because you were missing yeah. a hand. So um, unless you were a specific social class, imprisonment was actually fairly rare, um, and it was sort of at the discretion of the landholder. After all, who was going to pay for your upkeep? Um, you know, where was the benefit to the community in having an able-bodied person locked away and unable to contribute, essentially? Yeah. So punishments for petty crimes were often punished with within the community, so humiliation, corporal punishment and fines were far more likely. The death penalty was invoked in certain cases. Again, it depends where in history you are. Different countries enacted different laws, obviously. England, for example, almost never prosecuted anyone for sodomy during the medieval era, whereby mm -hmm. we understand sodomy to mean gay sex between consenting adults. But shout out to Henry VIII there for changing that tolerance with his sodomy law. Thanks. <laughs> Um, however, for some people, stealing or poaching was the only way to be able to eat, uh, especially during times of plague and famine. Um, so the law held that stealing, for example, was wrong, but had little to say on poverty-stricken pe peasants starving to death. 
worked wildly enough. Uh, while lords hunted in forests, um, usually, you know, their game reserves, and were illegally allowed to kill the deer, hares, boars, etc. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, it's within this gap between what is legally right and what is morally just that the exile or nidig, a danger, once a dangerous criminal, morphed into the moral outlaw who challenged yes. an unfair regime. Um, and we have historical and quasi-mythical examples of this. Um, so we have uh, Hereward uh, the Wake. Am I saying that right? Is he Hereward? Uh, yeah, I think it might be Hereward, but, um, it, you know, it's Anglo-Saxon. This is based on literally just after the Norman con- conquest. So yeah, <laughs> probably neither of us are saying it quite right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have uh, Hereward the Wake, uh, Robin Hood, or William Tell, uh, William Plunkett, Dick Turpin, um, and Robert Roy uh, McGregor. Among others. Yeah. <laughs> Among there are, you know, I did a quick Google just to check my facts, and there were literally hundreds of these folk heroes, both really popular and less well known. Um, and I, I honestly, I, I sort of ballsed out a bit and chose the ones that were relatively easy yeah. to pronounce. <laughs> anyway, it's little wonder that such a character should have appeared in so yes. much of our fiction. So. With that little history lesson out of the way, and there there is so much more history there which we haven't touched on, guys. I, I just like I feel like we could do a whole episode on that yeah. alone, but we're going to leave that for now. Um, and we're going to talk about how the archetype, char- sorry, how the archetype has been defined now, really, based on this. So the outlaw yeah. character exists to disrupt the natural order of things, um, or the perceived natural order, at least. They can follow a positive or a negative character arc, and more on that in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, they tend to feel alienated, disillusioned, and repressed, or repressed. Oppressed. Sorry, repressed? What, did I just say repressed or repressed again? <laughs> yeah, they're basically just repressed. <laughs> they're just really repressed. Sorry. <laughs> repressed. It's because there was or, so I saw the R again. <laughs> repressed or oppressed. <laughs> yeah. They're most often driven by the desire to seek change, which can manifest as mischief. They can also be driven by the need to shake up societal norms, you know, if they feel too restricted. Um, or even by desire for revenge, retribution, or justice. Yes. So the outlaw archetype tends to possess um, several of the following characteristics. So they tend to be bold, mischievous, candid, fearless, reckless, uh, arrogant. Uh, they tend to have quite wit, uh, quick wit, or wit quick. Uh, they also tend to be idealistic, um, unapologetic, uh, polarizing or controversial worldviews tend to sort of be part of their remit, um, and they tend to have a strong sense of what is morally right being what is important rather than legally right. Uh, in D&D terms, we would call this um, that the, they might be chaotic good <laughs> rather than lawful good, yes. Yeah, they would be the chaotic good character, definitely. Yeah. 
Um, almost all of them hate narrow-mindedness, being silenced, authority and rigid structures, and being powerless. So yes. you've already got a great recipe for a character just out of that little lot. So, um... <laughs> the moral outlaw will always be a rebel against these kind of things. Although, to be clear, that rebellion doesn't actually always mean uh, burning everything to the ground. Um, it can manifest as a search for escape, or... Uh, daring to be different, or working within a system to improve it, um, or refusing to be told what to do and disobeying quietly, or a combination of all and every one of the above. Absolutely. Not all rebellion is overt and noisy. Quiet rebellion is just as valid and often affects far more long-lasting change. Yes. Okay, so with that out of the way, why do we love this character? Yeah, this, I think this has got like the easy answer and some of the more difficult, complex answers. But basically, all of us at some point have probably felt unjustly treated or maybe even yes. oppressed. Um, and there is something about the Errol Flynn daredevil attitude that's very appealing and engaging. I yeah, think. I'm immediately thinking of the Seahawk or Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, where they're all wearing the most unlikely couture imaginable, and yet somehow it's become this quintessential medieval <laughs> type um, imagery for Robin Hood. I think that might have been where he he originally hit the big screen in Hunter's Green, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Hunter's <laughs> Green. Um, but yeah, these characters turn up in great adventure stories where there are physical, you know, whether those are physical or emotional adventures. Um, and I think on some level, probably most of us like an adventure story. We might not even know that we would it would be classified as, as an adventure story. Mm. But, you know, a story where there is some sort of great change, both externally and internally within the character and where the focus of that is is pointed doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think everyone has an inherent sense of right and wrong and the need to question, even if that is buried very deeply. So all of us can identify with the character in that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's look at some positive moral outlaw yes. character arcs. So um, you've got your revolutionaries, visionaries, and activists some when i say activists i mean activists as in someone who's literally trying to create change um on the fictional stage not someone who sat behind a keyboard <laughs> complaining on twitter so someone who's yes. actually out doing something um they might also uh seek to physically battle oppressive forces i say physically um that might involve a sword uh it might involve bureaucracy um there's lots of ways that battling can be done, but yeah, they're they're literally looking at an oppressive force and going against it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at um, the the first the first made Star Wars trilogy, where you've mm -hmm. got the Rebel Alliance and you've got Princess Leia, and obviously Luke and Han Solo. Han Solo is very reluctantly drawn into being a moral outlaw rather yeah. than just an outlaw <laughs> or space cowboy. But essentially, um, Princess Leia is as much a moral outlaw as anyone else. She's very mm -hmm. morally strongly driven, um, and she does want to affect change. She wants to remove this oppressive regime. And, you know, she's not really 
acting out of selfishness, she's not going to get a lot out of this apart from about 50 years of a headache. So Yeah, <laughs> which is literally what she gets. <laughs> which is absolutely literally what she gets. So, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's the whole seeking to equalise power imbalances thing. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Um, mostly the, the you can get the sort of the act out of desire to serve others, even if it is reluctantly. Um, and, you know, we've done a whole episode about anti-heroes and stuff like that. Um, and it, it can just be that, like, no, I'm, I'm in this for myself, but actually uh, I'm, I'm going to take these steps because it's the right thing to do, even if it personally costs me. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of Guardians of the Galaxy there as well. <laughs> there really is. It's like, well, because it's like, what did the universe ever do for you? Well, I'm one of the morons who lives in it. <laughs> might be nice if it was still there tomorrow morning <laughs> yeah um but you know an awful lot of the the you know positive character arc moral outlaws are still happy to benefit from the action so you know they're not going to say no to a nice big pile of cash or a medal or whatever so again you've got luke and, and han solo in that respect yeah or the guardians sort of been named to the guardians yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and being forgiven for their various crimes <laughs> Yes. Okay. You then have negative arcs. Yeah. So this can involve uh, radicals or criminals. Yes. Um, the radical thing, I think that the term radical obviously comes from the Greek uh, radis, meaning a root, you know, which is where we get the term radish as well, strangely enough. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's used, it's applied in a way that means to uproot everything and tear everything down completely. Mm -hmm. And to some people, that sounds like a really good idea. But if you do that, what you then end up with is, you know, for example, the British Empire moving out of parts of Africa, um, then left you with this ongoing series of decades of different warlords taking command. And things got worse and worse and worse. So I'm not saying that people are better under British rule at all. I'm absolutely not saying that. What I'm saying is, if you remove an organised system that is at least nominally trying to treat people fairly, or at least has some laws in place that say you can't do whatever you want, as long as you've got you, you know, as long as you've got the guns, um, and you don't replace it with something, then you are going to end up with something much worse. And that's why radicals are actually not really the answer to an awful lot of the questions yeah i mean the way to put it like that is if you if you do tear something up roots and all what happens is you leave a mess yeah you don't leave a, a nice sort of even things out now there are, of course there are times where it's okay well we're going to pull this up and then we're going to put structures in place that allow it to heal naturally or sort itself out but yes um a lot of the time radicalism uh is just about sort of this it tends to be kind of fueled by anger which again i can get and there have been times where radical ideas you know depending on what context because we're talking about political but you know that there are sometimes you do need a a radical idea to completely change perspective about a um you know a genre or something like that you can have radical ideas outside of of that we're going to put that aside um but radicalism is is interesting. I think a really good example of this is that we've seen it a lot in villains um, in a lot of recent kind of things. Um, I think fueled by 
stuff like Twitter and discussions and and looking at sort of um, you know social issues. So we saw it in um, Korra, uh, where you would have these villains who actually had some pretty good points, you know, and were pointing out there were serious issues uh, with um, what was happening. Um, in the world and the way that sort of the heroes were actually approaching it in that they were not actually dealing with it. Um, but in, they were basically then trying to force it the other way. And it's been kind of interesting to see the response to that because there have been a lot of young people who've actually said, I don't know why you're telling us they're villains. The only way we're going to accept that they're villains is because, you know, you're telling us them that. A good example of this is actually Killmonger in the Black Panther movie where someone's, you know, someone pointed out that really a lot of people would have just agreed and been happy with sort of what Killmonger was doing. Um, and the way that they had to prove, oh no, he's not right, is by basically having him just like sacrifice and kill his own girlfriend, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, because they said, we need we need to prove that he's, he's, he's wrong, instead of actually looking at, okay, what's the radical side of it? But then at the same time, of course, they were touching on an issue which has involved so much anger for so much time that the radicalism and was... has been deliberately fed by certain radical parties because it suits their own ends. Yes, yeah, let, no, we can't forget that bit. But I think it's you know there's a lot of justified anger uh, within uh, for <laughs> for a lot of people for very very good reasons. Um, there are a few people who have fueled things for their own agenda, one hundred percent. Um, and their own agenda actually is often nothing to do with the, you know, actually the people who are genuinely suffering. Um, it's actually tends to be counterproductive. And so you get this kind of these more radical sort of characters who are coming through who start to be beloved because they represent people's anger and their desire for change. And I think very often you know, a lot of these people, they feel that desire, they feel that anger, um, but they as individuals wouldn't be down with cold-blooded murder. You know. Yeah, well, yes. I don't know. I think some of them actually would be from the way that, you know, I wouldn't put it past them, basically. Um, the, the test <laughs> is, would I let them look after my cats? And the answer is no. Um, but, yeah, to be honest... Um, being having no. radical ideas about things isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself. It's what you're willing to suggest, what you're willing to sacrifice, as Madeline said. Um, to be honest, when when Nelson Mandela was mm -hmm. um, in talks uh, over apartheid in South Africa, he posited the radical notion that mm -hmm. actually this is not going to be a complete bloodbath, which it could have well very well have been, by saying no, we're going to have an accounting of faults and we're all going to say what we did. And then everyone is going to forgive each other. And I'm not saying that South Africa is in, in like the best state at the moment, but he stopped that situation yeah. turning into an absolute slaughterhouse. And that was a very radical notion. And that technically that that was tearing down something that had been there before, but he was replacing it with this this notion of we're all going to admit everything and forgive each other. That's pretty damn radical. That's proper yeah. radicalism. It is, yeah. I think the thing with radicalism is also the idea that it is going to be polarizing. Yeah. Um, and that there, that whenever there's radicalism involved, there's anger 
involved on one side or the other or several sides it's usually very nuanced because radicalism is a, a a single is usually a single bolt trying to sort out a tangled mess it's like you've got a ta- you've got a tangled sort of yarn and you've basically said okay i'm actually just going to cut this yeah, I don't want to do the work to actually untie the knots. Yeah, or, or you physically can't untie the knot for whatever reason because there's just too many people tugging at different sides <laughs> at once. Um, it's a very, it's a complicated topic. And again, anger and pain and suffering and all these things tie into it, which is why you, no one, I think, can give a simple answer to it. And that was one of the big things about, you know, Nelson Mandela... Um, why he, he he is so inspirational, but is also pointing out the fact that why there are still problems in South Africa, uh, because this yeah. was not something which could just be done in one fell swoop. There were going to be very long-lasting consequences um, to that, but it was a solution that he put forward which provided the best possibility for healing, um, but which didn't necessarily heal people of the inherent anger or immediately overnight solve the the inherited poverty and 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 all of that that comes into it which can't just be resolved that quickly yeah i mean we can't for example compare no. that to situations is, in yeah. other in other parts of the world because it's unique to itself so and I, I don't want to venture onto things that I don't know. You know, I know a bit about it, but I wouldn't style myself an expert, so I don't want to go too far down that. But just as an example of, yeah, you know, sometimes radicalism in that. Basically, if it, if your anger is a fire hose full of napalm, then you are not improving the situation. Anger can be a great goad to accomplish something if you keep it under good regulation and you don't spread it around on every single person. And unfortunately, that's what I see a lot of on Twitter and social media. And usually it's yeah. mostly very unhappy or very young people who don't have a lot of experience yet thinking that it's okay to do it that way, that things should be easy. And the thing is, it's not. It's it's going to be difficult. It means doing work. It means not being lazy. And maybe it means devoting your life to doing something that, you know, if you care about it enough, then... It, it means going and untangling all those knots and speaking to all the people and getting them to stop pulling on the thread so that the knots can be undone rather than cutting everything. Yeah, but this is the interesting thing. Like, like I was, we're really getting stuck on this one point. We need we, to. We move are, on. but this is this is this is the interesting thing: is that radical characters are important. I think. Yeah. Because they represent the opposite side of an an unbalanced scale. Um, And they allow basically this idea of sort of pushing boundaries in order to swinging between these sort of these extremes in order to find a balance. Um, And they are tools for catharsis, which is why I think particularly at the moment where there is so much anger, there is so much injustice, there is so many people sort of looking at the system and saying this is wrong and then finding that they have very little power to actually change the system or they feel that they have very little power to change the system. Um, We start to see these particular radical outlaws popping up, I think. 
Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, moving on to our next point. <laughs> Basically, how you can tell a negative arc from moral outlaw from a positive one is is whether they have a dogmatic approach. Do they believe they're completely in the right? Um, and adding to that, the absolutist attitude. So if someone is saying, you're either with me or against me, expect that to turn into a villain arc. Because anyone who says the answer, you know, it's black and white, it's binary, yes or no. You're with us or against us. We're burning yeah. everything down uh, or you're on the other side. Um, that is not the story of a positive moral outlaw yeah. arc. It is. And incidentally, if you happen to have yes. an absolutist um, attitude, you might want and to And in fact, it. one of the big things that you can see where it <laughs> diverts from being um, a negative arc... Uh, into a more positive moral arc is when you do have a character who does have an absolutist attitude and then sort of in the in the sort of either in sort of in right before the end uh challenges that and begins to sort of see more widely um or right right at the end they sacrifice they they change their absolutist attitude and sacrifice themselves. If they sacrifice themselves, they're basically a redeem, they, they redeem themselves as part of their villain arc. Um, and if they, uh, if they kind of change it, they can still be a hero because you can have an absolutist attitude in a hero who then during the moment of metamorphosis suddenly goes, oh, actually I need, I maybe need to rethink this. Yeah. But that tends to only be over one specific thing, whereas yes. the moral outlaw with absolutist attitude that applies it to almost everything probably isn't going to change. Generally, they don't in storytelling terms. No, but it can happen. But it's it is rare. It can. I feel like you you feel you need to leave a back door because I've just thrown a gauntlet about people with absolutist attitudes, and that's fine. No, <laughs> no, no. I still, no. I, I'm... I still think everybody does need to look at something and say, "Do I actually?" When when I disagree with someone, can I stop and argue their point of view? Because if I can't do that, chances are I might be being a bit of a bigot. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm, I'm not going to get into that. I, I am going to say that I have seen examples, and like you say, it, you don't, it doesn't happen very common, but you do see examples of characters who start with an absolutist attitude and then are made to kind of rethink things. Um, and I, I've, I've, I'm interested in stories like that. And you also see examples of that with people who start with an absolutist attitude and then uh, who, who go through the villain arc. And then at the end, they redeem themselves um, by actually sort of taking a step back. Again, I actually think that this happens a little bit with Killmonger in Black Panther. Um, because there is this kind of meeting in the middle, as it were, between him, obviously, and T'Challa. Um, the next thing is that you get sort of morally questionable methods of achieving goals. Um, and this is this is the big obvious one, which is that... Uh, it is the people can be collateral for higher higher means. So the individual can be sacrificed for the overall good idea, or even even something as simple as well. My enemy is in the wrong. Ergo, it's okay to do whatever I yeah. want to my enemy rather than treat them as if they are a yes. fellow person, which you know, is, is pretty morally questionable. It's different if it's a case of it's self-defense or no, if I don't 
then this person is going to cause so much harm that I'm yeah. basically responsible for um, And one for clear it. sign is that this is something that you will see all the time uh, when you have got sort of the sort of the corrupt sort of governmental officials where you've got a kingdom that's that's sort of corrupt or cruel and stuff like that and these are the methods they use they say this is for the embetterment of everybody you know yes we are repressing everyone but look how we have managed to maintain peace and we haven't had war since that but in that way we've sort of stripped everyone of their rights etc yeah to be honest if anyone ever says it's for the greater good or manifest destiny just run like hell the other way <laughs> they're greater good um <laughs> they're greater good um and finally, you know, it's the the losing struggle between light and dark within the within the self, really. Yeah, I mean, what I find really interesting with the we see negative arcs and positive arcs like they're that clearly defined and divided. And as Madeline's pointed out, you can have characters that can go either way. And if that you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to be a story that's shaped around a moral outlaw as the main character. They can mm. be great side characters as well. And so you might in book one have them being sort of Robin Hood and then by book three they're Julian Assange, you know? It's um, where, where it, clearly they have gone too far and they've been doing some other dicey stuff on the side and actually you probably don't really want yeah. them on your team anymore. because And sometimes you canon. get it in the reverse. <laughs> so they... And sometimes you get it in the reverse, although it's very difficult yes. once they've hit a certain point for them to come back from it. No. Um, but we won't get into the whole redemption thing. I do find it interesting that when you have a moral outlaw who starts from the perspective of, yeah, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to make things better, or maybe, you know, I'm just going to change this town, I'm going to clean up this town, and then they get so jaded and so worn down, and it's like a war of attrition to the point where they're not necessarily even actively bad, they've just become indifferent because they've, they've basically... Yeah. sloughed off the outer layer of themselves trying to battle stuff and not getting anywhere they've lost hope so that's always an interesting arc to explore as well it is and again at the center of that it tends to be rage and anger rather than love you know yeah i mean i do think that the, there can be a, a big mixing of, of that you know don't, don't get me wrong <laughs> It's like I don't. I, I'm of the opinion that you know, hate actually isn't the opposite of love. The opposite of love is indifference, yeah. and indifference is far more damaging. So if someone manages to sort of, okay, this is going to be a really weird image, but bear with me. Let's say that you know, love, just general sort of harmless love for for your fellow humans and everything, is a big balloon mm -hmm. full of water, and then someone comes along and jabs a little knitting needle in it, and some of it starts to flow out, and then they keep jabbing away until all you're left with is this balloon and it doesn't contain any love anymore it's just nothing it's yeah. empty it's indifference yeah. it's kind of like that yeah no I, I i would agree i would tend to agree but I, I think there's it's also this sort of because ultimately when it comes to anger being a motivator and that's the big thing anger being the motivator that is to do with the self Oh yeah, it's absolutely about it's, ego. It's it's ego. It's it's selfishness. When it comes to to be sort of love, then that's to do with other people. And love requires you to sort of love individuals. Now, of course, there are ways in which this can be twisted because you can absolutely say, "Well, I love this one person, so screw everybody else. They can all die." Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, he quit style. style. You can absolutely have it the other way around, and you can absolutely have justified anger. I'm angry on behalf of other of, of of myself and other people, and I want to make things better for other people. But at the heart of that, I think is love, um, and at the heart of Heathcliff's anger is hatred for everybody else. <laughs> you know, love for Kathy, hatred yeah. for everybody, and so please don't think that there is there is no binary. You know, there is a scale. <laughs> no, again, that, what we're saying here basically is absolutism bad. There's very rare. I mean, to be honest, if it's something like, do you like cheese on toast? Then it's fine to yeah. have a yes, no, or maybe as your selection of answers. But anything more complicated than that, it's like, there probably isn't a definite yes or no answer. Um, oh, another good one is... yeah. It's, it, it's you know it's like do you like cheese on toast or do you think cheese on toast is everyone evil? should die um, if I mean, they like cheese on toast which would include me because it's like my favourite snack but um, <laughs> other answers should I press this big red button that will set off a nuclear warhead it's like the answer should probably be no so again yes. there's not a maybe really in that situation anyway we've gone off topic again but um Let's look at moral outlaws in inverted commas girly stuff because this is really interesting, or I think it is. Yes. So we know that a lot of men are getting fed up of so many genres, uh, you know, being female led. um, And where those shows are a strong female character. Trademark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then that's actually justified because almost all fiction ought to aim to be story, plot, and characterization first, issue second. Um, we're we're ignoring those blokes who object just because a character is female, full stop. Because frankly, y'all need to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, there are feminists inverted commas loudly shouting about poor female main characters when the character in question doesn't do exactly what they want them to do. So, for example, smack down any man who crosses their path, either verbally or physically. And to you, we posit the radical theory that men are in fact human, and even if you don't agree with them, they are deserving of courtesy and respect, at least until an individual proves otherwise. And let's remember that men are individuals and not a faceless morass of maleness. Yes. One does not represent the all. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God. Yes. Thank any God. Thank it. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. Uh, moral outlaws are abound in fiction um, intended for men uh, because they are a key ingredient of thrillers, crime, and adventure fiction. Um, uh, you know, Lee Child would not be nearly so successful off of his Jack Reacher series if this was not the case, obviously. Yeah, because no one would want to read about Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher is like the littlest hobo, except he's human, extremely buff, and ex-military, with a dark past. And it's very entertaining stuff, I've got to say. I don't love it, but I know an awful lot of little old ladies who are like, oh, have we got the newest Jack Reacher? Yeah. Yeah. But totally women's fiction it. and teen fiction are also the perfect place for more outlaws, because teens are in a place where they are learning where they fit in the world. And they are rebelling against narrow margins. Um, And women have traditionally always been given the thin end of the stick. Um, So why wouldn't they rebel against that? I mean, I do think that there is a reason, once again, as we noted, a lot of the people who are kind of being very radical and stuff like that on social media and stuff like that tend to be young people. And we do see a lot of women doing it as well. Because I think that is a a sort of, particularly when you're a, a sort of, 
a young adult, that is a period of your life where everything suddenly becomes big and radical. Um, you have these big ideas uh, and a lot of energy to kind of put into them and a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion. And that's not wrong. It just is. It's the way that it is. Um, so, of course, it's only natural that we are going to see that reflected in fiction, which is, in inverted commas, for them. Yeah. Um, let's obviously remember that a moral outlaw does not need to be shooting dictators or bombing buildings to be an effective rebel. Yeah, you don't need. Not all moral outlaws need to be Katniss Everdeen. No, again, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yes. Um, in women's fiction, entering a role that is traditionally held by men and succeeding wildly through hard work and grit is actually an incredible act of rebellion. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the West, there are very few roles held by men now which women cannot enter at all um you know it's it's pretty unusual it's more difficult in certain mm -hmm. areas but it the gap evens up every single year however if we look at certain areas of the world where women are now being denied an education yeah. where you know perhaps a year ago they weren't being allowed an education um it's clearly yeah. still an issue absolutely there is definitely there's definitely stuff that is mm -hmm. worth shouting about. I'm not saying, obviously, don't care about things, don't shout on social media and don't drum up support. But I'm thinking, you know, sometimes I think people do it when... I think sometimes people assume they're being oppressed when actually they're being yes, inconvenienced. Um, I also think that sometimes people get so angry on behalf of others that they don't actually listen to what other people are saying. Um, and they don't, you know, and we yeah. see that a lot of the time is is people getting angry, forming mobs on behalf of a cause instead of actually looking at what the cause is. Um, Meanwhile, the cause is like, I'm actually fine with that person. That comedian didn't offend me at all. or That person didn't offend me at all. I don't care if someone's got a different opinion. Yeah. I don't need you to speak on my behalf. Who are you? Yeah, or... or, or you know, all the thing is like, thank you. You know, we were saying we were we did complain about this person saying something, um, but the way that you have now handled this issue has meant that we have now seen an increase in attacks against us uh, because you've yeah. made it into this big thing instead of it being handled on a on a local level, which is where it should have been. Um, you know, I actually saw a, a good episode of. Uh, the Cleaner, which is a um, a BBC series uh, about a crime scene cleaner, and they is that based on the Mark Daw Dawson novel? I, I think so, maybe. Um, I'm I'm not sure, but it has a is it Greg Davies, uh, the comedian who's in Taskmaster? What's his name? Anyway, the, no the really tall one, um, <laughs> like ludicrously tall, um, and. It's this whole episode they have about um, the removal of a statue um, of a slave owner, basically, um, who sort of put a lot of money into the local community, which was based off of, obviously, off of actual things that happened. Um, and throughout it all, there is a, um, a, 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 a man who works for the council. He's a black man. And you have a lot of sort of white, you have these two white women fighting about this whole thing. Um, and then finally they're like, oh, wait, I know. Why don't we go and ask the black guy? And the cleaner's like, this this feels a bit 
strange. Just, you know, you're just going to go up to him and be like, what do you think you should tell us? Because you have an all, you know, etc. And they do. And they're like, you know, why didn't you ever come to these meetings? Why didn't you ever do this? You know, you never said for or against having him there and stuff like that. And he's like, I'm, you know, doing all of this extra stuff, this work, and just trying to make it home in time to go and do this. Yes, I'm glad the statue has gone. I don't agree with what you replaced it with either, etc. Um, and it, it was this whole thing where you had these two women who were going to extreme yeah. measures and being very silly on both sides, um, and then not actually taking a practical point of view of actually asking the public what they thought or what they wanted. Yeah, it's kind of weirdly that's made me remember. Mum worked with um, another doc, a doctor. My mum's not a doctor. Um, she worked with a doctor. He was from I want to say Jamaica originally, and apparently when he was off duty or whatever, he used to get people approaching him in the street and asking to buy drugs um, because he was mm -hmm. black. So it's that kind of assumption, isn't it, behind it, which is which is terrible. Um, the thing with the statue is like, well. An awful lot of black people living in Britain were, you know, their parents were British citizens, their grandparents, their great-grandparents were all, always British citizens. They had nothing to do with the slave trade, so perhaps they don't feel like yes. they want to speak up about it. Or that, that they can't because, yes. you know, it didn't, or, or, didn't affect them. I mean, perhaps they do feel about it, and many do, and that's also okay. But perhaps they've also said that actually the way that the what's happened is that they've not really had a chance to to give their voice decisions have been made on their on their behalf without yeah. any consideration to what they actually want and i think the big problem is this idea that speaking to any one person of a community is is going to be the voice of that entire community and is going to represent what is right for that entire community because at the end of the day a community is just a group of people who happen to have usually only one thing in common Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that one thing might just be they live in one place together. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, going back to the girly stuff, because we have once again derailed ourselves. Um, yeah, the whole sort of uh, uh, achieving a, a non-traditional role for yourself through hard work is an act of rebellion. Um, I would posit that choosing to love and be devoted to someone that others deem unworthy of love is also an act of rebellion and I'm you know I'm thinking of maybe some sort of romance novels and things here um, because they can contain moral outlaws and that doesn't mean choosing a bad relationship or you know that guy's yeah. really really dicey stay away from him well screw you I'm throwing myself at the bad boy kind of thing um, it doesn't mean being stupid but you know, how many stories are there where a cheerleader picks the reclusive goth boy or the very moral yeah. kind human woman chooses a vampire? There's lots of them. Um, that's an act of rebellion too, particularly if everyone else is saying, well, we don't like that person because they're different and that's their sole crime. Yeah. I mean, it, it may sound silly, but even, you know, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jessica yeah. picking Roger is an act of rebellion. It's like, yeah, he yeah. makes me laugh. It's like, yeah, but look at you. And he's like, yeah, but he makes me laugh. I like funny yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah. It's a small thing. And particularly, I think, we tend to see women sort of doing that as sort of settling or things like that, rather than actually saying, perhaps there is something else here. Perhaps it is an act of rebellion. 
Um, of course, it does depend who's writing it and what they're kind of doing with it, because it can just sort of turn on its head, but we're not going to talk about that. But it is, a, it's, it is a small thing that we don't tend to think of, but is actually just as important. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also go the whole hog and have your heroine cross over and become part of the darkness, yeah. so sort of Bonnie and Clyde style. <laughs> That's an act of rebellion too, sort of saying, no, I've been hemmed in by this particular life and I'm choosing not to be part of it. I didn't choose this for myself. I'm choosing something else. Um, at this point, I'm going to say I'm not condoning people who cross over and say, yeah, I think I'll become a murderer <laughs> instead because that's more interesting. Um, but there, there is an act of uh, moral rebellion yeah, in some of those stories too. We shouldn't be too quick to dismiss them. Okay, let's look at some examples now. Yes. So one of my favourite examples is Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. It's great, isn't it? It's because it she is. is the quintessential girly girl. I mean, she practically is festooned in pink in every scene. Yes. And not quiet pink either, loud pink. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that that film... And obviously, you know, it's a, it's a stage musical and stuff like that. But I, I think the film came out at, at a very important time where we did see, um, you know, a lot of people uh, sort of pushing it, pushing against that kind of that girly, girly notion. Um, and, and there was this this divide um, and these assumptions and this whole sort of not like the other girls thing and this sense of moral superiority as well. Um yeah. And a lot of I do remember sort of seeing this story, whether it's true or not, you know, people saying, oh, you're going to let your kids watch Legally Blonde and someone else saying, what, you mean the story where a young woman ambitiously goes for what she wants and succeeds in it, um, despite what should be assumed as all of the odds? Without discarding the perceived trappings of femininity and still being true to herself all the way. Yeah. And still being a nice, kind person all the way as well. Yeah. She doesn't turn into a bitchy girl boss, does no, she? No, she doesn't. Um, and there is no compromise. Uh, that, I think that is the big thing, is that even if you you are not like that, um, it's not the, not the point of saying you need to be like this in order to be a true woman. It's the idea that you can be whatever way you want to be and still succeed but that actually sometimes there might be obstacles in your way and let's not like i mean the other thing about legally blonde is that they is that they do recognize the fact that looks did play a part in getting her where she where she was they recognize that but they also point out the fact that um she then is faced with the idea that she almost gets a kind of a promotional or all this sort of this particularly strong area because of her looks um and it wasn't a good thing. She was sexually harassed because of it. Um, and for me, yeah. I thought it was really, really strong as as a as a rebellious story. Um, because not only did it show this idea of a woman being able to go after what she wanted without changing herself, it also pointed out the fact that yes, we do have to recognise that looks do actually help people in life. People tend to be kinder, more generous, look more favorably, favorably upon those who are typically good-looking. Um, but th this can be 
an obstacle and that people can make assumptions in a different way. And a big part of the story was her pushing against the assumptions that people had. Yeah, absolutely. It's the line that always sticks with me is, I think she woke up one morning and thought, I'd like to go to law school. Like she is just this little blonde ditz, but actually she's she's clever. She's nice to everybody because she wants to be nice. And she yes, she does want to be liked as well. But it, yeah. it's also that, yeah, she is in fact really intelligent. She's probably more capable than the loser boyfriend who dumped her because she wasn't serious enough. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing is that obviously she does start off, one would say, potentially for the wrong reasons. So we say, well, she doesn't really care about being a lawyer. She's only doing this because she wants to be with a guy. And the point is that we, we tend to think of this in terms of her you know, just sort of going through the motions. And and no, there is no going through the motions. She really had to work hard. You think someone works that hard for something which doesn't mean a significant amount to them? She really, really loved him. She really wanted to be with him. Um, and there's nothing wrong with fighting for that. But the point of the story is that throughout all of this, she recognises that she is what what she's worth what she is capable of um and all of this effort that she was pouring into this worthless boy um you know is actually worth pouring into herself instead and she meets someone who is equal to her who sees her and appreciates her for that and i just really liked yeah. that i thought that it was a very rebellious story in that way i liked that and i liked the fact that even when she's met with hostility by other girls, she's she's kind of like, I would never have said that to you. Yeah. You know, that this is this... And she doesn't respond to viciousness with viciousness of her own. She responds with kind of a... I'm slightly disappointed and I'm calling you to be a better version of yourself, but without being preachy about it. The fact that she does not actually go into this sort of jealous rivalry with the, the girl who is going to apparently get us engaged to you know the her ex-boyfriend and actually befriends yeah. her instead it's um so yeah she does have a little bit of a mope she is a she's again she's still fully rounded and human and a girl etc but as you say she realizes she's worth so much more of that and she achieves it without being yeah. a mega bitch to everybody Absolutely. i think that's really important Okay, um, one of the most maligned characters in teen literature, but we're going there anyway. Yes. Uh, Bella Swan in Twilight. Uh, weirdly, you wouldn't think moral outlaw when you say Bella Swan, but if you think about it, yes, she is. She starts from a position of feeling alienated. She feels older than everybody else around her because she's mm -hmm. acted as basically her mother's emotional carer, her, her mother's emotional caregiver. Um and there's been a lot of scathing commentary about oh, she gave everything up for, a, you know, a boy kind of thing. It's like, it's not really that straightforward. If you actually don't just watch the films, but actually read the books properly, if you care about knowing. And this is someone who is a fully rounded character, who is quieter, but is actually a decent person, who is kind, who is able to see beyond appearances, hmm. who is willing to give someone who is... Who, kind of an outcast a chance um and he doesn't care what other people think but again is, is not uh, like an uber bitch in order to get 
I always find it astounding when people say, oh, I prefer this character because she's she's much bitchier. And I'm like, that can be lots of fun, but yeah. the character isn't necessarily more effective. She's just more of a bitch, you know? Um, what I think people kind of miss with Twilight, and this is the thing that made me think about it differently, is the fact that, yeah, if you go through the entire quartet, mm-hmm. um, Bella is the quintessential moral outlaw. She yeah. literally joins the vampire. She crosses over that line. She becomes part of the merry men, if you like. <laughs> um, that's that's really interesting for her sort of character. And she does it all without compromising any of her own morality or any of her own opinions and worldviews and things. She kind of does it the right way as much as she possibly can do. Um so, yeah, actually, uh, I, I do think you can argue that she is a moral outlaw, and I think that's a really interesting addition. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It just it just happens to be quieter. Yeah, and the fact that it's a love story means that an awful lot of people have gone, oh, well, it's just a love story. Like, we really need to get away from that, because those stories are important yeah, too. Okay, uh, we mentioned it before, but obviously Katniss Everdeen. Yeah, absolutely the reluctant the reluctant hero. Um starts off literally only caring about herself and her family because that's yeah. what she's got the resources to care for. Wouldn't be in the Hunger Games if it hadn't been her sister. She no. wouldn't have volunteered for anyone else. Um but once she's there, she's going to survive if she possibly can. And she cannot help but care about other people on the way. Uh which includes as you go into the series caring about some of the other winners from previous years and then by the third book caring about other districts and things um, when she sees destruction rained on them she starts really genuinely caring about the cause she is driven by wanting snow dead you know it's kind of in the terms of her contract like i get to kill snow (laughs) um but she she also is not so blinded or absolutist in her worldview that she doesn't realise that coin is as bad yeah. in a different way, that she would be replacing yeah, a absolutely. pig with a man, if you see what I mean. Um, Harry Potter. Yeah. Certainly, there's a, a, by the time you get to uh, the Order of the Phoenix, he's absolutely a moral outlaw. No one wants to believe Voldemort is back. Harry is somewhat angrily and probably in a misguided way, as Hermione points out, um, saying, no, you've got to wake up and pay attention to the truth. This is a real problem. And he suffers for it. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. he is absolutely a moral outlaw, certainly, probably for most of that, because he's somehow he's always doing what he thinks is right rather than what the rules require. (laughs) Yes. Which does, you know, result in certain bits and bobs. Yeah. Um, Um... Go on for the next one. <laughs> yeah, uh, Midnight is the Darkest Place by Ashley Winstead is a thriller with a little bit of horror woven in. It's not out until set- late September, I think, so I don't want to spoilify anyone. Um, just to give you a flavour, it's set in Louisiana in current day, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very small community in... Oh, God, what's it called? I can't remember the exact name of the town. Basically, this entire town is ruled over by this girl's Mm -hmm. father, who is a self-proclaimed pastor, even though he's had absolutely no religious training (laughs) whatsoever. So everyone has sort of fallen in with this new sort of Bible Belt-esque type religion. Um, 
which has done all sorts of really dicey shit. And it's just her, and she makes friends with the one real outcast in the town at her school who happens to live out sort of in the swamp. Just, just in the house, swamp. not just randomly <laughs> in the swamp. It's not swamp thing. And, and they're inseparable, and it's the one thing she absolutely will rebel against her parents about, and they stop her going away to college, they stop her doing awful lots of things, they practically try and arrange a marriage for her. And it's a scary look at how certain people will cut off avenues of retreat and mm. escape for other people in a bid to control everything. And what these two sort of 20-something, you know, early 20-year-olds end up doing, you're kind of supposed to be looking at it and going, yeah, that's morally reprehensible, we can't condone that. But every single time that you found out a bit more, I was kind of like, yes, air pump. That person definitely needed to get what they got, kind of thing. <laughs> Trying desperately not to spoil the fire. Um, yeah, it is, it is absolutely a moral outlaw story, and it very definitely leans into that trope. So, if you like thrillers and if you like a little bit of horror woven in, um, or sort of, I say horror elements, there's no real supernatural or anything going on there. Mm, um, okay. Definitely give that definitely. one a try. <laughs> um, we do have to talk about Batman. <laughs> Yes, very briefly. Um, to be honest, I'm like, yes, he's kind of a moral outlaw, but he's also so much a vigilante that I'm like, can we really call him moral anymore? Depends on the, the incarnation, I think. Yeah, um, it's it sort of, like you say, it, it sort of gets a bit murky. Um, but it I does depend um, on, on which version you are looking at um, and how the story is being told. Um, Certainly, I think that there are examples of, of Batman who really are kind of that moral outlaw. Um, and you tend to actually see it in, in the ones which allow him to show his kindness. Does that make sense? It does. I think the thing is, it doesn't really strike me as kindness in the same way. Although I think if we're thinking of things like The Dark Knight Returns, as in the graphic novel, um, yeah, you have got yeah. a point. Yeah. Um, again, it, it depends on the incarnation. You every now and again, uh, you saw these sort of little moments where there are versions where he he does display kindness, gentleness, and there is this kind of great sort of sense of rebellion in the fact that he's not kind of actually approaching things in just a, a sort of a brutal way. Um, and actually, you see this in particularly the Justice League cartoon series, where actually um, Bruce on several occasions um, favours and even shows a lot of, you know, um, sort of, for example, you would think that Batman and uh, the Flash in Justice League would be total opposites. And yet it shows the fact that they have this whole episode where Batman shows a lot of appreciation for the Flash because he recognises the fact that the Flash doesn't have that sense of vengeance and that anger in him. And the, and the Flash is 100% rebellious against this whole sort of crime-fighting system because instead of just beating up his enemies and things like that he will sometimes just sit and talk to them um you know he's got one uh who is uh clearly 
has um it has been on medication and stuff like that and he he has he sits down and has this whole drink with him in a bar instead of fighting him um and just you know says look you know you're off your medication again um but i tell you what you you go back to the hospital okay um and i will come and see you and we can play darts together and stuff like that and the guy's like okay sure thing you got me flash and it, it's this whole rebellion against what pretty much everything else has been which is them just beating up bad guys and and batman sort of being the one who's saying no let flash do it his way because his way is actually compassionate and kind and quiet and while we tend to think of him being the clown actually that is an act of rebellion because he's making things less grim so it, it can actually be done quite nicely yeah, um thought we were talking about Batman, but that's okay. We can add the Flash as well. <laughs> we are. It's just, sorry. I mean, because Batman was involved with that as well. And, and Batman was basically acknowledging that. No, no, so no, anyway, no. I apologize. Anyway, going um, the on. Anything else? I, I will add this to, to Batman the fact that he is so close to being a villain at times. And then it's really yeah. interesting because he's got, he has got this, I know what, what's best attitude and I will take, do what it takes to achieve a goal apart, which is why he's drawn that line in the sand for himself. I won't kill because he knows once he's gone over that line, he may not be able to stop himself going a hell of a lot further. Um, yeah. But I do think it's interesting because every so often something will, will jerk him up, right? And he'll be like, I was wrong. And he will change. He will adjust his behaviour. So he's, he pulls himself, he really flirts on the brink of being a villain and then pulls himself back at the last instant every single time. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you see this particularly, this dichotomy, particularly when you've got him on his own and when you have him in stories where he's teaming up with other people. Because when he's on his own, he is much more likely to start veering towards that villainous kind of side. Whereas whenever you have yeah. stories where he is part of, you know, the Justice League or when he's with his family or stuff like that, it pulls back because he's got other people there who are sort of challenging him. So it's quite interesting in that way. Um, it's been a really, really long time since I watched this film, but um, Thelma and Louise, I don't know if you can actually call them moral in the traditional sense, but there is a, an interesting act of rebellion, certainly in the time when the film was made, whereby two women aren't depicted as competing with each other, but being devoted to each other as friends. Mm. And I do find that an interesting dynamic as well. I've got to confess, I know nothing about it. Okay, well, we'll skip over that one because I need to rewatch it before I comment too much. <laughs> but I might well come back in future and say, you know what? They weren't moral outlaws at all. They were just outlaws. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, but from this perspective, from what I remember, and again, we're going back a couple of decades at least here, <laughs> they kind of fit the bill. Uh, okay, Merida from Brave. Yeah, I like that in the sense of she's not necessarily trying to change the world as such, but she is deliberately... I mean, she's based on the story of Maeve of Colnut, so they've set it in Scotland, yeah. but it's actually an Irish story but where she basically won the right to sue for her own hand in marriage because she didn't want to marry any of yeah. the local Shifton's sons. Um, and, you know, in, in Brave, she's kind of like, okay, well, I'm choosing an archery contest and I'm going to enter it. And there's all sorts of political ramifications, which, you know, Disney sort of spoofs up. But the idea is yeah. you've just shown up all these rivaling clans by outshooting their sons. You, so you, you did something 
that was an act of rebellion and you've caused a yes. big problem and obviously there's the whole mother-daughter relationship but yeah she is technically acting as a moral outlaw it's not right yes. to force someone to get married when they don't want to um and the law at the time would have been she she could say no if she wanted to but then the huge amounts of pressure that a noble family would put on a daughter in order to marry as in you're not a daughter of ours would disown you if you didn't get married kind of thing mm-hmm. um don't make it that that great a choice yeah absolutely uh finally we have flynn rider from tangled yes the outlaw who is you know actually quite moral and will act unselfishly in extremis yes um but actually likes being an outlaw he likes being the cowboy he does um and again it, it i think there's this there is a sense of rebellion that happens twice in that he is on the surface level that typical rebel you know and then there is yeah. this moment where he has this other rebellion halfway through where he allows himself to become Eugene again. Um, you, and that yeah. is an incredible act of rebellion because it is a rebellion against the self, which we haven't really talked about, but it's this idea that he he basically felt small, worthless, unseen as Eugene. Um, and in the end, he decides to embrace that part of himself, to not be this this swashbuckling character, who is a character, but to be this quiet, well, not quiet, but, but this much more realistic, much more nuanced um, person who is opening themselves up to feelings um, and through that, a lot of danger. So... I, I do like his character yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think he's great. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we need to start wrapping this up. But who is your favourite? I mean, outlaw? I just—you know how much I love Robin Hood. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say, that. "Are we talking about the fox, or are we just talking about the general I mean, Robin Hood character?" Just, just general, like most incarnations of Robin Hood. If someone says we've got a version of Robin Hood, I'm like, I'm there. I'll watch it. Of course, we have to talk about the fox, uh, who is just <laughs> incredible. Um, I have to, I have to recognise Loch Lamora and, and all that jazz. I have to recognise voiced mon, uh, voiced, voiced, moist von Lipvig <laughs> as well. Actually, yeah, yeah, slightly more of a con man, but definitely yes. more outlaw at certain points. What about you? Honestly, I kind of like Mal from Firefly. Um, yeah. And he's he's very much a reluctant moral outlaw. And he, uh, you know, you think about it, he has Jane on his ship as the muscle. Jane is not a moral outlaw. Jane is where the money is and will betray them, as yeah. he proves. Um, but Mal's kind yeah. of like, yeah, we're not going to do that because it's not now. So, oh, fuck it. We're just going to help these prostitutes anyway. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and definitely has a justifiable chip on his shoulder because of being abandoned um, when he was part of the military. So, yeah, yeah, I like him. Um, Obviously, now that I've realised that Bella Swan is a moral outlaw, I would count her as well. I think Elle Woods is a fantastic example of how you can be a very quiet, sort of not blowing things up, moral outlaw, by challenging the system from working within it. Yeah, I agree. So, there's some great examples. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, um, 
we just like these kinds of characters because they represent what we could be because as you as we said you know i think everybody has felt trapped by in one form or another by society by familial expectations by self expectations etc um and so we always will need stories about people who push against that in whatever way yeah, for inspiration definitely. and for catharsis so <laughs> with that in mind actually um it's time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and i'm actually going to recommend a story which is actually sort of about sort of moral outlaws um and it is the netflix uh film nimona which was obviously based off of the uh graphic novel and the the web comic by and i've just forgotten her name uh uh andy C- stevenson it is Stevenson. Yeah, I'm just, Stevenson. I was just looking at the book on my yes. shelf. <laughs> I said her name. I think it's his. My apologies. His name, Endy uh, Stevenson. Uh, Nimona, for those who don't know, follows the story of a uh, knight who is accused of a crime that he didn't commit. And whilst he is on the run as this outlaw, he suddenly finds himself in the company of a very strange girl who has particularly odd powers. And throughout the story, um, they sort of begin to challenge um, what everyone understands in terms of what morality is and what the reality is. And we see a lot of the things that we discussed in this, uh, <laughs> in this episode, particularly, um, the, the idea of, um, sacrificing everything for the, for, for the greater good, uh, large sacrifice for the greater good, which we start to see in this, in the villain character who really thinks they are doing the right thing. Um, yeah. but they, very much clearly aren't because they have become so certain of their views that they are actually about to destroy the very thing that they swore they were going to protect. Um, it's a really wonderful film, well worth watching, some nice queer representation as well. In, in fact, it's just got represent, representation on every level because the main character becomes uh, disabled very quickly. Um, and it, it, within the story, um, and it, it's just, it's very good. It's worth watching. Um, you can also check out uh, the graphic novel as well. So that's my recommendation for the week. And on that note, guys, we'll say thank you very much for listening. Cool. As always, we are open to people's interpretations, ideas. Is there anything you disagreed with? Do you think we've missed something? Um, please do let us know. We're always happy to hear that um, and to learn more or consider from other perspectives. So do get in contact with us. Um, but until then, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. 
or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.